Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. On the morning after Election Day here in the province of Ontario, and uh, on this program uh, we will meet uh, both Bay Area mayors, one new one, uh, one has been re-elected, and uh, well, an awful lot of controversy, but uh, we broadcast, of course, live from Hamilton City Hall with the results here on 900 CHML last night, and uh, it was pretty obvious uh, when we saw the numbers uh, who was going to win the mayor's race, and also pretty obvious when the mayor showed up at City Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberg re-elected uh, for another four-year term uh, on a very, very different kind of council. We're going to talk about that in just a couple of seconds, and we're pleased to welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for this. It's uh, the morning after, and uh, did you sleep well last night? Uh, like a baby, uh, Bill, uh, I woke up kicking and screaming every two hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I had a great sleep last night. You know, last night was one of those memorable moments. So, you know, you know that, uh, you know, election night is, uh, kind of one of those anxiety filled moments for everybody, especially those that aren't the candidate, uh, family and others. And, uh, it was certainly a, a very pleasant, uh, evening last night to, uh, to be vindicated for, I think, four years of good work and, and a message that was, uh, you know, beyond just one issue. Well, uh, let's talk about some of those issues. But before we get to that, Mr. Mayor, I want to talk about the composition of council. We didn't have a whole lot of time last night uh, when you joined us at, uh, at the City Hall uh, broadcast. Uh, this is a much different city council uh, for a whole lot of different reasons. Some new faces, some new attitudes, and, and some new perspectives. Well, not only that, uh, and, and seven women. So that's, uh, you know, that's a positive step in the right direction. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, lots of talent to, uh, to work from. Um, you know, we've got some seasoned uh, veterans there, of course, and, uh, and some new, new faces that uh, are eager and anxious and are going to bring some new thoughts and ideas to this council and to this city. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I think I've always advocated for turnover. Uh, you know, we, uh, we, can, we can often stay too long. Uh, you know, you need to get out into the private sector and find out what the, what's going on in the real world and then bring that back to... Uh, bring that back to the city. So we've got uh, some great talent coming forward. Uh, J.P. Danko up on the mountain, an engineer that uh, is clearly an LRT supporter for all the right reasons, but also, uh, you know, has a, a lot of passion for, you know, how do we how do we continue to build our city? Uh, Narendra Nan, uh, you know, uh, uh, is a, you know, a great candidate, a, a minority, and, uh, you know, certainly a woman that uh, will bring a, a very good perspective, I think, to our council, and hopefully we can uh, get them placed in areas where they're going to have a great impact. Uh, and, and I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to forget the others, but uh, all, all the names don't come to mind right now. Well, Maureen Wilson, obviously in Ward One, and, uh, Maureen, and you look at some of the other yeah. folks that are coming in. Of course, uh, uh, a, a lot of new voices and new faces, but people that many uh, in, in many circumstances, anyway, Mister Mayor, not new to the political process. I mean, they they've been around uh, uh, at, at least during campaigns, and some of them have run for public office before, so they know the ropes. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Maureen is, uh, you know, super smart, super talented, has been engaged, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the process, not directly, but over the last 10 years or so, just being an advocate for good public policy. And, uh, and, and previous to that, uh, worked in Mayor Wade's office and, uh, and, uh, Terry Cook's office for a time. And of course, uh, ultimately married, uh, the good Terry Cook, who, uh, who I know well, and I'm sure had a had an anxious night last night as well, and was just super excited about the the prospect of his uh, his good wife, uh, you know, becoming a member of council. Uh, you know, lots of talent, lots of experience. Uh, I, I think everyone brings uh, brings a certain uh, know how to the to the process, and and of course, having some veterans back is is a kind of a stabilizing effect as well. And you know what? Uh, nice to see that we're also kind of building on the momentum of the last four years. You know, we, we, uh, we've done some great things as a council collectively, and uh, we've got great things to build on, and I think uh, all of the new members and, and, and the existing ones have, have a very, very positive uh, foundation to work from. Mr. Mayor, some of those veterans, or those returning veterans, uh, had some less than complimentary things to say about you and your leadership abilities. Uh, obviously, it was circling around the LRT issue. But uh, mm-hmm. things got a little testy there from time to time during the campaign. How can you how can you put this behind you and and, and try to start with a clean slate? Or can you? Uh, look, I, you know what politics uh, can uh, can uh, you know can afford the strange bedfellows from time to time. And uh, you know a number of those candidates have flip flopped on uh, on the LRT issue on uh, many occasions. All of them, quite frankly, unanimously supported going after LRT. 
and uh, and supported a whole series of votes that actually advanced the the, the entire project. Uh, and then up until recently, uh, you know, got cold feet. I think they were looking after their own self-interest, and I'm hoping that they hear the message from uh, the constituents, the citizens out there, loud and clear, that the majority of the members of uh, the citizens in our community support moving forward on LRT. You know, I, I got an enormous amount of votes, probably the highest vote count in, in recent memory. Uh, you know, and I don't take that as a personal victory. I take that as a victory for the city and for the vision that we've been putting forward that says we can uh, we can build this. It's going to be a positive impact for the city. It's not going to raise our taxes. It's going to generate revenue. It's going to create employment, all the good things that uh, we needed to do. So I'm counting on all of our councillors to... Uh, to hear the message and to reflect on that and come to the table with a positive approach to uh, getting this thing done. Well, and, and that mandate that you talked about last night uh, obviously is from the voters themselves, uh, but you do know that, again, some of these returnees on city council, and including Brad Clark, who's back on council, of course, now, uh, are, are digging their heels in and opposed to this. Now, I don't know what next steps are going to be at this stage. Uh, we're never going to get unanimous support for, for this, just like we never had unanimous support for the Expressway or for any of the other major, major projects. That, that's happened. I think that's a political reality that you and I have talked about. But how do you sway some of these people that are, are, are vacillating right now that seem to support it and then they backed away? You've got to get them back in the camp because the numbers right now if there ever was a vote on this new council, you've only got six solid supporters right now, and I don't know where the other ones... We know where some of them are, but there's some that are in the middle right now. Well, and I, I think the, 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 the some that are in the middle are, are, are going to be onside ultimately. Uh, again, they can read the tea leaves. Uh, I don't think they want to be offside with the rest of their community. Uh, I suspect that in many of the wards that, uh, that uh, they ran in, uh, I, I, I may very well have gotten more votes than they did, and I think that's a, that's a pretty key indicator of where the community at large is. And so uh, I'm counting on them to, uh, to, to, you know, stay the course. And, you know, and I, I know that, uh, you know, give credit to Chad Collins. Uh, you know, he started off as being one of the only ones that was opposed, uh, you know, from the, uh, not from the very beginning, but certainly as close to the beginning. And uh, he was actually quite chagrined that uh, other people were coming on board. And, uh, you know, when we had to deal with the, uh, the environmental assessment, that last hurdle that we crossed before we get to the operating agreement, he actually changed his vote and said, uh, "We are, we know, we're too, we're too far along in here. We need to keep this thing moving." And so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, good, solid, uh, experienced voices like him understand uh, what the mood of the public is right now, and that uh, he will stay with the program and get this thing done. We saw that, uh, and I know you saw that on the old council when the expressway debate was still heated up. Uh, it got to the point where I think there was probably expressway fatigue, and, and even some of the people on council at that time, Mr. Mayor, that were opposed to it finally just said, like, I'm just going to vote no. I mean, we've already talked about this. Uh, are you anticipating that sort of reaction with some of those folks? Well, you know what? Uh, with, <laughs> uh, I'm hoping they're just going to vote yes, uh, and then, you know, let's get on with it. Your glass uh, is you half full yeah. kind of guy. Well, yeah, and, uh, and you know, and, and, and you know, a couple of these candidates, uh, even through the course of this campaign, which their their tune started off uh, by being uh, you know fu- fully supportive, saying we're, we're we're you know we've marched along too far and now we need to keep going, uh, and then uh, and then switch gears. So look, I mean uh, I I'm going to hold the province to account on this. They've said that uh, they're, they're that the billion dollars is there for a transit project. Uh, they've said that uh, whatever Hamilton Council decides is what they're going to uh, follow through on. Uh, and I'm uh, I'm fully expecting that the Hamilton Council is going to decide yes, let's move forward on LRT. If not, that they're they're really betraying the the wishes of the community at large. You know what, folks uh, said at the beginning of this campaign, at least one candidate said that this was a referendum on LRT. Well, we've had our referendum and it was decisive. So let's move forward. Let's talk about that relationship with the province, and and we know that the wild card that probably has uh, stoked the flames of discontent here was uh, the comment by by candidate Doug Ford and and eventually Premier Doug Ford that says, look, you can't have the money anyway, and some people are interpreting that in different ways. Uh, With the election victory last night, Mr. Mayor, and with the the margin of victory that you had, uh, is it time to sit down and have a conversation with the Premier about uh, the direction and say, it's LRT, can we get going on this? Well, clearly, and uh, you know, we've already had that conversation. Uh, you know, I sat with the premier, uh, you know, a month and a half ago, and uh, we talked about these very issues. And uh, you know, he uh, he said he was committed to Hamilton's uh, wishes, and uh, I'll hold him to that. 
uh, I'm, I'm going to go back and tell them again and let them know that uh, Hamilton has decided as a, as, a, as a citizenry that this is the way that they, uh, they want to go. And I think uh, it would be folly for them to go against the wishes of the city of Hamilton. So uh, I'm, uh, you know, that's my message. Uh, that'll be my message going forward to the Premier when I see him next. And we'll certainly be organizing a time to sit down with him and the uh, Minister of Transport. And uh, both of them indicated that uh, the billion dollars is there, and uh, if Hamilton says yes to LRT, they're going to be behind that. So I'm going to hold them to that. There are at least one of the the new councillors who uh, seem to be opposed to this right now that mentioned to me last night that, that, that probably to reaffirm what you've just talked about, there should be an up-and-down vote on city council uh, to either say yay or nay to this thing once and for all. Are, are you up for that? Do you think it's necessary? Uh, we're going uh, to have a vote on the operating agreement. Uh, you know, those that want to, uh, you know, push this uh, to, too quickly, I think, are, are going to are, are really trying to undermine this process. Uh, they need to uh, they need to be able to uh, have a full understanding of what this project is about. And we have uh, some new councillors that need to understand. And I had private conversations with a, a few of them that are new to this council that uh, had previously said uh, when they ran. Uh, in another uh, venue that they were opposed, and then uh, then came forward uh, after I gave them a complete briefing. Uh, with our Metrolinx and uh, LRT staff, said that they were actually in favor, and then uh, retreated back into, uh, you know, well, maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, my constituents don't want this. Well, I think the constituents have spoken, and I think they need to adhere to that, and uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to be uh, sharing information with the, the new members of council that might not be, uh, you know, in favor, and let them know where we are, all the benefits that we're potentially are, are going to give up should we go another way and everything that we will accrue if we continue to stay with this program and get all the benefits that this LRT project provides. It's an interesting point, because when I talked to some of the new members that were elected last night, uh, more than a couple of them suggested, look, we really need a refresher on this. I mean, the information is available, but there's been a lot of back and forth, obviously, over the last year. Uh, Do you see council getting together for a kind of a refresher to kind of bring everybody back up to speed as to where you are right now? Uh, I see us, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, bringing up, up to speed the new members. Uh, the existing members know full well. Uh, some of them have decided to distort the facts, and, uh, you know, that's unfortunate. And I, uh, I hope that they uh, stop doing that and stop you know, kind of trying to derail this thing. And, and uh, others uh, need to be informed, and we'll do that on a, on a one-on-one basis. And, you know, the best way to get them informed and up to speed is to have a really direct conversation with all the staff sitting in the room, uh, you know, answering all of their questions so they can be fully informed. I think the community already understands this, and uh, that's why they voted the way they did. I think the information that we've shared with them uh, throughout the campaign and over the last four years, they finally come around to saying, you know what, we get it, we want it, and uh, let's get let's get moving forward. I think it's probably important to remind uh, the voters and our listeners here, too, that at all this time during this campaign, uh, that the rhetoric seemed to heat up again and the, the debate seemed to simmer once again. Uh, you never hit the pause button on this. I mean, staff are still working on this project on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, it's out for tender uh, right now, Bill. Uh, uh, this is not a project that has been uh, uh, undecided. It's been moving forward. Now, you know, truthfully, uh, this council, because it's a new term of council, could uh, make a decision on a simple majority basis uh, as opposed to a two-thirds majority, which was the uh, the avenue that we uh, that got us through to uh, to this point. But... It is out for tender. Uh, the, the, the last step is really to finalize the operating agreement. And we know and already had uh, information shared with us that the operating cost is uh, in the order of some 6 to $7 million. And that uh, the, the benefits in terms of additional tax revenue uh, going forward is, uh, is uh, significantly more than that. So for all intents and purposes, it starts out as a wash and, and, and it ends up as a, a net overall benefit in terms of tax revenue going forward, not unlike the expressway. So you recall that you know the the argument against was uh, it's a it's a nothing but a cash cow. You're not going to generate any more tax revenue, and you're going to damage the environment. And uh, you know what happened was that we, in fact, got got more development today. It costs us seven million dollars a year to own and operate the uh, the expressway, and it generates some fifteen million dollars a year in, in new taxes each and every year as a result of the development that ha- that's happened as a result. And the same thing will happen with uh, LRT. You mentioned last night, Mr. Mayor, that you wanted to hit the ground running with this mandate and, and start moving forward on a number of these files. Uh, you, of course, uh, because of the election last night, are, are the head of, of council, the political end of things. Uh, you need a head of the administration for city staff right now, too. In other words, a city manager. How quickly are you going to tackle that problem? 
Well, we'd uh, we'd already uh, got our staff working on uh, taking in applications, and uh, we have a, a firm uh, engaged and has been working for the past month or so to uh, prepare. So we should be able to hit the ground running, uh, you know, later. Uh, I, mean, I, w- I would say December by the time they compile everything, and I expect by uh, sometime in early January, by the time the interviews are done, we'll have a new city manager in place. Uh, lots to do, but uh, obviously a couple of days for reflection and uh, hopefully take down some of the election signs around town here too, Mr. Mayor. Well, you and yeah, you and everybody that's, else. Yeah, that, that's uh, part of the uh, the joyful work of uh, the aftermath of an election is uh, we're, we're going to get a lot of signs back and we'll uh, find find some place to store them and uh, and thank everyone that uh, that took them uh, in in support of our campaign and all the good people that came out to vote. Uh, you know. I, I respect all the candidates that step forward. Uh, you know, putting your name on the ballot is uh, never an easy thing. And uh, I congratulate them all for their effort and certainly congratulate the winners and uh, all those that participate in the electoral process. Uh, getting out the vote is so important, and we saw a bit of an uptick in the vote count uh, last night, and that's uh, that's a positive sign for sure. By the way, now that the election's over, uh, we, of course, will uh, once again start with our mayor's town halls, and uh, we'll start organizing that over the next little while uh, to give our citizens, of course, an opportunity to have that one-on-one with you. Uh, Mr. Mayor, busy couple of days, I know, and uh, lots of time for reflection and get moving on the next agenda, so we uh, do thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. Bill, thank you so much. Look forward to our next town hall. You betcha. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Thanks so much, Mr. Mayor. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We mentioned that we were going to meet uh, both Bay Area mayors. You just had uh, a session here with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger a couple of minutes ago. Uh, we are pleased to welcome to our CHML studios the mayor-elect for the city of Burlington, Marianne Mead Ward. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Great to be here, Bill. I, I know we've talked over the phone again. many times on some of these issues that, uh, that I know were very, very important during the campaign, but it's, uh, it's finally good to have a face-to-face. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, about this campaign and last night. Uh, with the victory. Uh, I got to ask you right up front. Uh, I know how, what a positive individual you are, and I know that you always thought that you got a really good shot at winning, but did you ever think that what was going to happen last night to the rest of the council was going to occur? We were very surprised to see two incumbents defeated. Uh, usually they come back in municipal elections, but we saw a huge turnout, uh, 40%, which is the highest it's been in many elections in Burlington, in in, in my memory, and people want to change. They clearly spoke about change. Well, they talk about the winds of change blowing through it. It was hurricane force in Burlington <laughs> last night. Yeah, pretty much. There and, was... and you're right, some of those were just vacancies that were being filled in, but uh, your, your seat, of course, and Rick Cravens, and, uh, so so that that was part of it. Just, just the same. Uh, you can have to wear name tags when you guys have your first council meeting. Well, I know all of the individuals who ran and won, and I really get, I'm very excited to get started working with them. They're all great people. They care deeply about the city, and they all also ran on a platform of change and listening to the community uh, around the singular issue that defined this election, which is development, and how you plan your community defines every other issue. I, I know that there's always a discussion, um, as there has been in Burlington too, about things like term limits and and this sort of thing. But do you find that invariably the the, the voters will tell you when it's time for change? Well, I'm actually in favor of term limits. I think that we need change, and it's very difficult to to defeat an incumbent. It it can happen, but this was a unique election after four years of uh, really relentless growth in the community and uh, the community saying, we don't feel heard in the decisions that are being made. And it wasn't just downtown. Uh, what we discovered in knocking on doors is that everybody in the city feels an ownership of downtown, feels uh, that it's that it's their downtown. But there are development applications and were in the last four years in every neighborhood of the city where the community said, this isn't my vision. You know, we, we want growth, we accept growth and change, but so do this instead of what's being approved. And you can ignore the public for four years less a day. They were not going to be ignored last night. But I got the sense, and I'm just trying to put this in perspective, uh, I, I noticed something brewing even before that, uh, and it seems to have been happening, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd even go back eight, ten years, with some of the issues that were going on in Burlington. Obviously, there was the pier, and those are the things that made the headlines, but uh, the hospital redevelopment, some of the other plans that were happening down by the waterfront, and, and I got the sense of talking to a number of the neighborhood groups in various parts of the city that they were saying, we're not comfortable here. There's mm-hmm. something going on here that we're not really crazy about. And that, that, that angst, I think, tended to grow over the last few years. Well, the angst grew because it hit every neighborhood. And 
it wasn't just one application in one part of the city. And so it really started to grow in the last four years where community groups then realized that, you know, a small group of 15 or 20 residents in a neighborhood could be ignored and, and an incumbent still reelected. But when you have that in every neighborhood across the city and every councillor now has skin in the game because their own residents are saying this isn't my vision for the community, that's when you really start to see the change that we saw last night because it wasn't isolated anymore. And, and residents started to find themselves, in the, uh, find each other in the last four years. You know, resident group A talked to resident group B, talked to resident group C across the city. People from the east to the west, north to the south were saying, well, you know, we're in the same situation where you where you were a year ago. You know, it's the same uh, same song, different verse. And we really need to to, to band together. And so there was a, there were uh, multiple uh, citizens groups and organizations, formal and informal, that got together to to work together because they recognized that only when they started to work together would their voice be ultimately heard. But in some cases, uh, and even from the political realm, from those, some of those councillors of those days, uh, that discontent was disc- it was characterized as well. These people just don't want to see growth, and and they don't want to see change. And change is change is inevitable. We all know that. Well, one of the key uh, five priorities in my plan is respect respect for residents, respect among council members, which was sorely lacking in the last uh, eight years that I've been on council. And, you know, when residents would come forward and say, I'm okay with growth and change, and could we do this instead of the plan that's in front of you? Every time delegations came forward, I would ask folks, okay, what's your alternative? So we're not going to stop. We're not going to, you know, build a so wall this around this Burlington. this wasn't opposition just for the sake of opposition? Absolutely. And it, no, no. Residents said, we would accept this. And I always put that question to the people that came forward or the residents groups that reached out to me. My first order of business was, uh, if this is not your vision, what is? Tell me how this this changes for the better. And they would. They would spend uh, so much time looking at what a reasonable application would be. And for their efforts, they were called NIMBYs not in my backyard. They were called bananas, which is uh, build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. They, you know, and, and any number of other names, they weren't the experts. They didn't know about the future. They just didn't like change. And and I heard that from my own colleagues on council. It was repeated out in the community and uh, residents were saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not an activist. I'm not a politically active person. I just care about my, my neighborhood. And more importantly, I care about my city. And we have to change that. We have to work with our community, not around them. There are some common problems, I guess, in just about every city. And, and, and I know even from my time on Hamilton City Council, I was always on the planning committee, uh, that you've, you've got it coming from all angles here. You've got people that want to develop, they want to invest, and, and that's a good thing. Yep. You've got city staff that will vet that process as against the, you know, the rules and the stipulations and the parameters that are set. And then you've got the neighborhood, who may or may not agree with that, may have some, as you mentioned, some variations on this. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to crack crocodile tears here for elected officials, but it makes the job pretty tough to try to get all of those perspectives together and try to come up with something that's going to be palatable. Absolutely. One of the things that I started doing as a councillor was asking every developer who wanted to develop in my ward, in Ward 2, to meet with the community before they submitted any applications. They didn't have to do that. And that was actually unheard of. I got some flack from people for even suggesting that they should do that before they file an application. And my pitch to the development community was, look, this will save you time and money, ultimately. It'll save you a fight and a headache, but but mostly it'll save you time and money because if you hear some ideas from the community before you submit applications, you can include that and incorporate that in your plans and then submit. So you're not changing plans and having architects spend thousands of dollars to, to update them after you hear from the community. So there are several applications that came forward in the last four years in my ward where we did that met multiple times with the community prior to any applications being submitted. Once applications were submitted, the conversation didn't stop. And I can tell you about applications that the development industry was okay with, the community supported, staff supported, and council unanimously supported. That also happened in Burlington in the last four years. That 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 story doesn't make the headlines because there's not a whole lot of controversy there, but it, well, it's, it's it actually old, it's, happened. It's the old story. Nobody covers about planes that land safely. That's right. right. <laughs> 
But if it happens, it happens. And it's the controversial ones, obviously, that seem to get people's angst. Uh, let's let's talk about some of the challenges, though. The waterfront is one. There's the downtown, obviously. Absolutely. Uh, you don't want to lose your waterfront. I mean, Burlington's done an incredible job with Spencer Smith Park. Uh, there is, of course, a, a great deal of pressure right now for development, their high-rise development. The council's okayed some of them, uh, yep. some of them not yet. Uh, how do you find that balance? Well, we have a huge application that we will, it, actually not an application, a plan that we will have to deal with, which is the Waterfront Hotel. Yeah. So that is right at the foot of Brant Street, right next to Spencer Smith Park. That is a, uh, a specially designated site in our official plan where you have to do a special study, a stakeholder group consultation before any plans can be submitted even for redevelop, redevelopment. And we know that um, the individual who owns that, who's also a, a land owner and developer here in Hamilton, Darko Vranich, uh, wants to develop that. So we embarked on this study about a year and a half ago. And suffice to say, there was not a meeting of the minds between what the community envisions for that area and what the developer wants. And, and we're not sure where our staff are because, of course, they haven't written a recommendation to council. We will have to deal with that in the next, in the next term. And that's a big issue to try and figure out how we're going to get the right development there. My my preference, and I think the community's preference, would be let's see if we can buy it and turn the whole thing into a parkland. It's not for sale. So our plan B would be uh, how do we keep development reasonable and off to the easterly portion near some of the other developments so that we can open up the park wide. That's the kind of conversation we need to have is is not just accept a development application and count the number of units and count the number of floors. We need to make sure that the community is getting the best deal out of development that includes green space around a site, especially when it's contiguous to your, your jewel waterfront park, but also commercial and retail, which we've lost downtown. Uh, i got to ask you about the campaign. Uh, <laughs> election campaigns can get pretty dicey from time to time, and there's always a back and forth, and any time there are contrary opinions, you're going to get some friction, etc. Uh, the one in Burlington turned totally vitriolic very, very quickly, and, and you were the target. And, and this mm-hmm. went on for quite some time. Absolutely. How did you and your staff and your, your supporters uh, handle this and deal with this? Because it seemed to come at you from different directions constantly. It was like every week there was some new uh, attack against us, and it really started in April and then ramped up uh, just relentlessly in the last few days leading up to the campaign. Everything from a phony push-pull survey trying to discredit me that, that started in August. There was a misogynistic flyer that went around that compared my uh, character and attributes negatively and in a way that was extraordinarily sexist and misogynistic. It was very personal. They said nothing to do with policy. Nothing to do with policy policy uh, and then compared myself to the current mayor uh, favorably and you called that out and I am so grateful Bill for you doing that until more people stand up and say this is not right we can debate the issues we can have difference of perspective but to allow this kind of thing in in a campaign is is absolutely wrong and you know it was shocking but what almost immediately happened when those things would hit is the public would out the public had an outcry sure. it backfired people said this is not the way we do politics in burlington it's not the way we do politics in ontario or canada this is unacceptable fight on the issues discuss platform and voting record but that is beyond anything and and that was that's what kept us going i i got but, yeah, wh- but your, your family your friends are seeing this stuff that's got to be tough well, my family and friends know it's not true. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, and it didn't, I don't know if it persuaded anybody. In fact, what ended up happening, we know anecdotally, there were people that saw that and said, you know, I, I wasn't really thinking uh, about you, but if somebody is that keen and out to get you, you must be doing something right. And so people would then look more deeply into my platform, look more deeply into what we were trying to do in my background, and then that persuaded them. So people took the time to actually see what all this was about. And I, I thank the good people of Burlington. They are decent. They are good. They said resoundingly in this election, dirty politics, hidden money, does not decide for Burlington, the people do. 
And and that was gratifying to see the the public reaction to it to what was going on there because I mean it was vile it was it was and I got a couple of ugly emails as a result after I, I came out oh, and, wow. and said and and that's fine I just said thank you, you just proved my point yeah but, but, <laughs> yeah no kidding and and sadly I guess those people get to vote too unfortunately but you know <laughs> it didn't seem to obviously have an impact on the electorate uh, we want to talk about a number of things uh, we we want to talk also about of course uh, you coming in for the town halls on a monthly basis we Absolutely. look forward to that what what's what are the priorities now going forward, Marianne. I mean, you mentioned the first week of December is when the new council gets sworn in. Uh, you know a lot of these folks already. Uh, and as a matter of fact, a lot of their platforms are very similar to what you talked about. Mm-hmm. It's time to hit the pause button and let's look at where we are and what we, our plans are for the future. How do you how do you incorporate that? How do you get that ball moving? Well, we uh, immediately I'll be talking to uh, the region, but also my new councillors elect to talk about how we amend the uh, new official plan, which was adopted by council, the old council and not yet approved by Halton Region. We need to make some changes to the downtown. That's a central part of my platform. We need to get development right because every other issue, people say, well, that, you know, that became the singular issue in this campaign. That is the issue because if you don't plan your community properly, then your roads and your transit and your parks and your infrastructure don't work for you. And that's the that's the pinch points that the community started to feel over time. But, so, they, but they, they all, a lot of the people, your critics anyway, said you're just focusing on this little three block area of downtown. Uh, which, well, which, which was not yeah. totally true no, because you not. had issues on Aldershot. You've got issues out on Appleby Line, uh, right down the there, there Alton, were also Lakeside Plaza, 2100 Brant Street. There are development applications across the city in various stages. Some have been approved over the objections of residents. Some are still being processed right now. Um, but all development, I think people are, are gaining the awareness that even if it happens in three neighborhoods over from me, it affects me for traffic. It affects me for um, availability of community amenities. We heard people that are, are leaving Burlington because we don't have enough uh, amenities, whether that's ice time or fields or even programming for our growing community. So we need to address that issue as well. So so that's the first thing we need to do. We also um, need to get ahead of the cannabis issue. I do not favor an opt-out, and so we need to make sure we have regulations around smoking in public. The, the, the clock is ticking on that too, isn't it? it the really government's is. only give you a certain amount of time to, to say yay or nay on this. So that's jumped to the priority list because yeah. of, thank you, uh, thank you for that legislation, but now we have to deal with it, and, and we can, you know, it, we, it, it, this is, there's, it's a lot of common sense when it comes to where you locate them, how many, but we also need to deal with smoking in public, which will be an issue whether or not people get their cannabis in the mail or whether they get it at a retail store. So, uh, so, so that's, you've got zoning issues. That's, that's that's a big ball of wax to try to, to to put together in a short period of time. There's a lot to do, and I also want to reassure the good people of Hamilton that we won't be invading Waterdown. <laughs> we're not <laughs> going to we're not going to be annexing the community. What I would like to do is start a conversation with Fred Eisenberger, and I have a great deal of respect for Fred. I've known him for uh, a number of years. We've bumped into each other in in uh, at various conferences. Um, we need to have a conversation again about LaSalle Park and. Burlington. It's owned by Hamilton. We've tried in the past to buy it and and come to some arrangement to get it back into Burlington. That'll be the focus of some discussions with Hamilton. Uh, let's talk about those partnerships because that's something that uh, the, the city is and uh, both cities actually have forged and I think very effectively over the last number of years. Uh, collaborations on things like economic summits. So you know the two chambers of commerce working together, the two mayors working Absolutely. together, uh, and it's it's manifested itself now, of course, with a huge uh, federal grant to, to, for uh, the work that's. Been been going on now, and it's it's now it's it's KW, it's Burlington, mm-hmm. it's Hamilton, uh, it's it's a, a center of excellence now that's really being developed. Uh, you've got your own incubator right now, an innovation project that the, the Burlington is working on right now. There's there's a lot more be- that's similar between our two cities than there is that se- that separates us. Absolutely, and we are we are part of the 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 whole region, and so these issues that we face in Burlington are issues that every community is facing to different scale, and so we have to work together. We have to also share ideas, and and not just in Ontario where. You know, we have the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. I think the Federation of Canadian Mis- Municipalities is also a huge resource for all uh, municipalities looking at w- 
you know, who's doing great things? Where are the, where are the great ideas coming from? And start to uh, to share that with each other. And and I look forward to those discussions too. You've had uh, historically some very proactive uh, and very aggressive uh, members of parliament in the Ontario and of course the federal legislature. That and that carries on. That's that's got to be a big asset. Yeah, we have great representatives in Burlington. We have two provincial members, of course, and our federal member. And, uh, you know, they've both reached out to me, congratulated me. I'm, I'm delighted to get started working with uh, three wonderful women in uh, in the other two levels of government. Because, you know, even though, uh, you know, we're at the municipal level, the issues that we face cut across all levels of government. One example, the federal government is developing a national housing strategy. One of the biggest issues that we face is affordable housing in, you know, across the country. And so uh, looking forward to working with our federal partners about that. And of course, we know there's a a huge relationship between the province and the municipalities and, uh, you know, and, and we need to we need to work on those issues together, uh, but not throw up our hands, right? The public doesn't want to hear, well, that's a different level of government. There's nothing we can do. We There's a lot we can do and, and advocate to each other and then start to, you know, I think Burlington should have its own city of Toronto Act kind of thing <laughs> where, you know, they have special powers from the province. I think a lot of municipalities in uh, Ontario now need to start to grow up and uh, and get some more authority from the province. Exciting times. Anytime there's change, there is uh, anticipation, I guess, of what's ahead. Uh, thanks so much for coming in today. It's great talking with you. Congratulations once again, and look forward to working with you over the next few, four years, I guess. Great to be at here. At least four years. Uh, at least four. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you, Bill, and, and thanks to the people of Burlington for giving me this opportunity to serve. Marianne Mead Ward, uh, the mayor elect of the uh, city of Burlington. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, as we speak, uh, the Prime Minister is in Etobicoke uh, with a number of key members of his cabinet uh, introducing uh, plans for the uh, government's carbon tax plan, how this is supposed to roll out and how this is supposed to benefit you and me. Uh, Some still look at this as nothing more than a tax. Others say that it's something that's absolutely necessary to try to combat, uh, well, what they're classifying it now as the price on pollution. Joining us to talk about this is Steve Applin, publisher of Emission Track, which uh, monitors CO2, carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Great to be back, Bill. Are you surprised uh, that we're 362 days now from federal election that the government would, would actually roll something out like as controversial as this? Not really. I've, I've, they have to do something, and it was either uh, do something like this or back off, and I don't see that the uh, federal government has given any indication that it's going to back off of uh, a policy that I think that is is not going to be effective. But I but they've got those two options, and and uh, and I guess they're going to roll the dice and see whether checks in the mail are going to swing voters uh, in their favor. Yeah, the the rollout that we've seen, and I've only got some of the details now because he's still speaking. Actually, this is obviously only going to impact Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and New Brunswick. Uh, and you may say, well, that's only four of the provinces, so that means the majority. No, th- that's actually where the majority of the population in this country is. Right. So this is going to have an impact on an awful lot of people. That's correct, and and it's uh, I'm 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 going to be surprised as, or going to be interested to see how Alberta is dealt with in this because Alberta is the uh, largest emitting pro- province by far, and uh, I don't see well. I mean, a carbon tax on, of the magnitude that the feds are envisioning, and I'm hearing you know twenty. Uh, dollars a ton of C- per ton of CO2 starting in tw- uh, 19, uh, 2019 up to fifty dollars a ton. Uh, uh, even at the upper level, I don't see behavioral change being compelled by this thing. So, uh, and and you know, given let let's not forget, Bill, that the whole idea of doing this is to meet uh, our our twenty thirty Paris Accord commitment, which is to reduce something like two hundred million tons out of our inventory. Uh, and a unless it's the, uh, of huge emission reductions are are achieved in Alberta, that's not going to ever come to pass. And b are you going to make are you going to compel behavioral change with a twenty dollar a ton going up to fifty dollar a ton carbon tax? Well, and, and let's be frank about this. I mean, if there's a change in government in Alberta in the next couple of months, uh, Steve, I mean, when, you know, and Jason Kenney becomes the premier, yeah. uh, there's no chance that these guys are going to say, "Yeah, we want to fall into line." There's uh, there's absolutely no chance. Uh, it, well, it's the the funny thing is is that the NDP has done this. So you don't have to be the, the the meme that the that the federal liberals are are coming out with is that this is a far right alt right you know falling at the mouth. Rachel Notley doesn't strike me as somebody in that category, and she has pulled out of the carbon tax until the Trans Mountain is 
is sorted out, and that's not going to be sorted out before the next federal election. So, yeah, it's it, this is a sort of a wing and a prayer. And 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 again, like I don't I don't think politically it's I don't think politically it's a outlandish move. Uh, there's there's no rule that says that the voters of Ontario, having voted in Doug Ford, don't also agree with the federal Liberals about a carbon tax. There's no rule that says that. So it's it's perfectly. Uh, within the realm of possibility that Ontario voters re-elect the Liberals, uh, whether it's because of the carbon tax or not, is uh, is something that, that I guess we're going to find out. Uh, th- but there's nothing outlandish uh, with that scenario. So it's, it's perfectly possible that it could happen. The opposition, though, Steve, and, and I'm talking about these four provinces that we just mentioned, uh, Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick, uh, their their contention is that look at you shouldn't be doing this. There are technological things that we should be trying to explore now to reduce emissions, uh, not by taxing people. Yet I, I've talked to a number of environmental economists over the last number of years uh, as this debate has raged and it has raged. That said, you really got two options here, guys. It's cap and trade or carbon pricing, you, you, one or the other. There, there's nothing else on the table at this stage. Who's right here? The provinces are right. The environmental economists, with all respect, I, I believe are are totally wrong. They have they don't have a body of evidence to point to. The the best evidence they point to is British Columbia, and the best thing that you can say about the British Columbia carbon tax is that it slowed. It may have not did. It may have slowed the rate of increase of gasoline usage in British Columbia. Bill, we need we need quantum uh, deep quantum cuts in carbon dioxide emissions, not a s- slow in the rate of increase of fuel consumption. In, if we're going to uh, abide by what the IPCC just told us uh, uh, last week or the week before, you know, we, we've, got, we've got urgent cuts to begin now. So the premiers are absolutely right. The premiers in the anti-carbon tax provinces are absolutely right. This is a technological thing. Now, Ontario's got the best uh, uh, case to be made against this. We have the biggest emission reduction on record in North America since uh, climate change became a public issue, and that was by decolifying our electricity system. Mm-hmm. And we didn't decolify our electricity so much as replace coal with electricity, because if we did not, or with nuclear, if we did not have the nuclear plants, we couldn't have replaced coal. So uh, this that's the technological um, um, approach that needs to be taken, and unless that is taken in especially Saskatchewan and especially Alberta, uh, we're not going to see emission reductions, no matter what the carbon tax is. Why aren't we having that national discussion then? Uh, because the uh, I've got my own pet uh, complaints about this. Uh, I'm I'm glad you and I are talking about it, and and we're probably a minority of 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 uh, of commentators on this. Who are, Seems who are that way, yeah. Into it, but but it's it's basically the uh, since the beginning of the climate change debate, and you know we, we're talking 15 years now in this country. It's been dominated the non-governmental go-to sources are dominated by ENGOs, environmental NGOs. Uh, Greenpeace, uh, Friends of the Earth, Suzuki Foundation, Pemina Institute, uh, go down the list. And they're all in this category. They're all anti-nuclear, so they've never given Ontario the due for reducing CO2 that it, uh, for reducing the CO2 that it's reduced. And when you ca- uh, canvass them on possible approaches, this is what you get. You get cap and tree. You get insipid stuff that is proven to not work. Cap and trade and renewable energy. And if you want a perfect example of how, uh, where they went whole hog on cap and trade and renewable energy, just go to Germany, where the emission, reduc- emission reductions have not occurred. They're still dumping enormous amounts of CO2 into the air, as much as they were before they started this stuff. So the, the debate has been channeled into those, into a very, very artificial set of options that don't work, frankly. Yeah, and, and obviously uh, that was seeming to be the plan that Ontario was trying to follow under the wind government to, to combine That's those correct. two things. And uh, I, I don't know, I guess the argument that I've heard anyway is, well, it wasn't in place long enough for actually to get some results. So it's in place longer in Germany, and they still don't have any significant results. So i got to wonder. Uh, 2005. Yeah, and uh, the old thing about, you know, what's the definition of insanity? You keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. <laughs> they got to do more of it, exactly. Well, that, that's that's what they're asking us to do here in Canada, and that's what the pro-carbon tax pro-renewable energy crowd is asking Canadians to do. I wish that we would have more conversations about Germany and places like that. Uh, Germany and and other countries that have gone whole hog on renewable energy. You know, Denmark is another perfect example. Ontario's orders of magnitude cleaner than they are when it comes to electricity, and we did nothing other than 
stop using coal because we had laid up nuclear plants that we brought back into service. Without the Bruce and Pickering plants coming back into service, we couldn't have replaced coal and we would be having the same conversation as all these other countries. Uh, but what happened to that part of the discussion, Steve? I, I, I still remember having discussions with energy ministers, and this is going back, I guess, to the NDP government of the early 90s, and, and subsequently even uh, when Jim Wilson was the energy minister under the first uh, wave of the Harris government. And, and, and okay, we're going to get rid of coal, uh, and nuclear seemed to be the option. But you mentioned that now, and people look at you like you have two heads. Like, you wouldn't even consider that. But it worked exactly in Ontario. Right. It worked in Ontario. That, that's right. It was not considered. This is because when... Uh, well, I don't know. I, I guess when, when somebody needs to talk to an, an environmentalist, uh, there are, there's a sort of self-styled group uh, of environmentalists. Uh, you can be pro-nuclear and be a strong environmentalist. I consider myself in that category. Unfortunately, we're in a very, very small minority. The mainstream environmental movement, is it, it, its whole reason for being was it came out of the anti-nuclear movement. It came out of the anti-bomb movement. And then when, when bombs stopped being an issue, they moved over to nuclear powers if the two are the same thing, which they're not. So uh, the, uh, the public debate has been channeled into those options by the, sort of, uh, by the go-to sources who, quite frankly, again, like now we've got the benefit of 15 years of experience in, in cap-and-trade places like Germany, as we've said, uh, California. And, and other places where they're dumping as much CO2 into the air as, as, they, as they always have been. Uh, and uh, I wish that people would start now looking at the evidence, start looking at the at, at OECD data that shows, that tracks Germany's progress from the beginning of this energy transition that they started in around 2005, around the time that their cap-and-trade system came in, and see what sort of uh, uh, um, results they've gotten for all the money that they've spent. They tripled their price of electricity, and their emissions flatlined, meaning they didn't move up or down. That's that's what I call failure. And like you said, Bill, this is the definition of insanity. They're thinking, well, we just need to do more of it now. And since it didn't work in the first 15 years, you know, in in those in the space of those same 15 years, Ontario took coal out of its electricity system. There's one way to do that when you don't have lots lots of hydro, and uh, and mainstream environmental groups need to uh, accept that. What what sa- soured everybody on on nuclear? Was it Chernobyl? Well, I guess it was. I guess it was uh, uh, Chern- Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. The, yeah, the, yeah. The funny thing about this, is, yeah, they got is, kind of a one-two punch. Yeah, that's right. Well, Three Mile Island happened right after the China Syndrome uh, movie came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, with Jack Lemmon and uh, Michael Douglas. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and so there's this and there's this uh, uh, hysteria in the public uh, over this accident, which when you look in the grand scheme of things, had no environmental consequences and had no human health consequences. There were zero casualties out of Three Mile Island, yet it's a household word. Uh, it's, it's stuff like this. It, uh, people, you know, very good at public relations, very good at media relations, uh, very cynically exploited the hysteria around this, and Chernobyl you know, was, was a gift to them. And, but if you look, in the, again, in the grand scheme of things, the three humdinger nuclear events of all time, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima. Two of them were casualty free. Fukushima, nobody's died from it, and and yet it gets it gets trotted out as if it's some major disaster. And it, at Chernobyl, fifty six people died. It's an unfortunate tragedy. It was it was a it was a terrible accident. But fifty six bill in the in the in the annals of industrial accidents, that's a minor industrial accident. So uh, you know we've had worse natural gas fires. We've had worse propane. Uh, explosions. There was a propane explosion in Mexico City that killed 600 people around the time of Chernobyl, and nobody's ever heard of this thing. So it's there's a bit of there's a bit of uh, a kind of a tilted board when it comes to public opinion on this. And well, you know why uh, though? Part of that, Steve, is because we're getting little tidbits of information. I mean, you know, you and I referenced the report. I think it was about a month ago now uh, that was done by this independent body that essentially said that look, at uh, the, the carbon taxing is actually going to work and it's going to put more money in people's pockets. Now, I know a lot of people looked at that as a very skept- very skeptically, and I think with with good reason. But even as the prime minister is making his announcement today, uh, they're touting the fact that the average family in Ontario is going to get a check for anywhere from three hundred and seventy to about five hundred bucks. Uh, and yeah. that's, that's by the way, and I'm guessing it's really just coincidence here, Steve, but that's pr- probably going to be about five or six weeks before the election. That's going to be, yeah, that's right. It, uh, but uh, let's, let's look at this. The Ontario Liberals, uh, under the Ontario Liberals, low-income families got $300, 400 a year back in HST rebates. Uh, they 
don't have official party status. And these these checks were I don't uh, I, I I don't know when those checks come through the mail. There's that. There's the Fair Hydro plan where the uh, where the electricity bill was lowered by essentially borrowing money, and and they were not rewarded at the polls uh, f- through those actions. So it's not a hundred percent certain. And now that we're uh, we're we're uh, talking about the amount of money that uh, that people are going to get, you know, you you are punished for using carbon on the one hand and on the other hand you're getting a rebate back so if you if you you know lead a normal life you live in the suburbs heat with natural gas and and drive a gasoline powered car uh is that check back in the mail going to get you to say well you know that i've really got to stop using carbon i don't see that as a disincentive that's just something that you know this is a political thing there's an election coming and what they want is the recipients for these checks to think well who is the government in power now and do I have them to thank for it? If I, you know, thank them for it with a vote, will they? Will these checks keep rolling in? That's the different message that we're supposed to be talking about. We're supposed to be reducing CO two by twenty thirty. I don't see any CO two reductions happening in this scenario. Well, and I guess that's what I'm looking for. I mean, you know, everybody loves to get a check from the government, obviously, but you know, yeah. without even asking where the money's come from. Uh, but but I'm not seeing any discernible difference in, in in emissions over the last little while, and everybody's been trying either one of these things for a number of years now. That's that's exactly right. That that's that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's the nub of this issue. This whole idea is uh, making our Paris uh, uh, commitment: 200 million ton reduction from you know 700 million uh, annual tons of CO of anthropogenic CO2 from Canada's inventory. Uh, if if you're going to pay me, if you're going to make my gasoline, you know, five cents a liter more expensive, and then send me a check at the end of the year, what's that telling me about my gasoline usage? I don't see, you know, I just see a check coming at the end of the year. Gas is a little bit more expensive. Yeah, that's right. But it it fluctuates and goes up. You know, if they introduce something like made it, you know, design the carbon tax so that there is a so that the price of a liter of gasoline is a dollar sixty. Let's just say. I'm not. I'm not saying, suggesting that anybody do this, but if they did this, that would hurt. That would. Uh, I remember being out in BC during the, uh, when the carbon tax came out. Gas was a dollar fifty. It's. I've never spent that much on gas, and I did think about. You know, am I going to put pedal to the metal? Then you know, my trip down the island. I don't know if I'm going to do that. So at that level, people start wondering about gas and start wondering whether, whether they should buy a big SUV. But when gas prices are fluctuating and all you're doing is you're, you're adding three or four cents to the cost of a liter of gasoline, I don't see that people put the tie the carbon tax to that and say, oh, yeah, carbon's bad and I've got to stop using it. No, uh, not yet anyway. We haven't reached that point. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the perspective on this. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Steve Applin, of course, uh, publisher of Emission Track. And uh, always a welcome guest here on the program. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.